Let me go ahead and open us with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for yet another day to worship you. Lord, so many things have happened this week in the various lives of the members of our church. It's hard to comprehend how quickly life moves. For some people, there have been exciting and fun things this week. And for others, there have been life-changing, discouraging things that challenge our walk with you, challenge our faith. Lord, I just pray that you give us all strength. Everybody gathered on this campus, I pray that you would remind us of your love for us and your care for us. And regardless of whatever trials and difficulties or joys and celebrations are in our life, I pray that you would help us to remember that we are dependent on you, that you hold us in your loving hands, and that nothing can separate us from you. Lord, we pray that we'll be encouraged by the teaching of your word, both in Sunday school and in the main service, and we pray that everything that occurs today would bring you glory. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we are continuing through our study of 1 Peter, we have for the last few weeks been in 1 Peter chapter 4, and we're in the beginning of a section that runs from verse 12 to the end of the chapter, but I sort of broke up the first section as verses 12 to 14, and we've been working our way through this text, and I, Lord willing, if I goes according to plan, I'm going to finish this particular section this morning. As we have said over and over, and as I continually repeat, First Peter is really directing us to be holy as God is holy. That's the call of the book. Peter says it explicitly in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 to 16. We're not supposed to sin anymore. We're supposed to put that aside. We're supposed to be holy as God is holy. And the entirety of 1 Peter is just practical application of how do we live that out. It's challenging. He makes it clear that in the challenges, at times, our lives in and of themselves will be evangelistic. I'm going to read it later in our teaching, but in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, I think I've read it over and over and over again. In the teaching, it's clear that our lives are supposed to say something to a lost and dying world that's hostile to us. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. That's just a repeat of chapter 1, be holy as God is holy. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Again, be holy as God is holy, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. In other words, some of those who are slandering us now, one day, because they've watched how we've responded even to the attacks, will turn and repent and will give glory to God one day. So as I've gone through this particular section, we're in a portion of the book dealing specifically with being holy in the face of persecution. You're being treated poorly, not just because life is hard and the world's full of sinners, but because of the name of Jesus Christ. And Peter's telling us how to live under those circumstances. And my overarching outline wasn't the normal three points, four points. It was just biblical principles for understanding and responding to persecution. And the first principle, I'm going to go through them quickly as review, but the first principle was that persecution of believers is normal, not exceptional. Verse 12 of 1 Peter chapter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. He was making it clear, persecution of believers for Jesus Christ is not the exception, it's the rule. 
Christians were being shamed, humiliated, embarrassed, and no doubt some of them at some point might have been wondering, wait a second, what's going on? This wasn't supposed to happen. And Peter's reminding them, look, don't be surprised. Yes, it's painful. It's a fiery ordeal. But don't think that something strange is happening to you. This is what's supposed to happen to believers. As Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. And Peter just wants them to have perspective. Don't, don't get sidetracked. Don't panic. Don't be surprised. This isn't some strange thing. This is just normal behavior for a believer. The second principle, and again, I've taught at length on these. This is a quick review. Persecution should strengthen us, not destroy us. Persecution should strengthen us, not destroy us. It's a little clause in verse 12. It talks about the fiery ordeal, and it says, which comes upon you for your testing. In other words, God in His sovereignty, He's not responsible for the sins of sinners who are attacking us, but God uses that to give us an opportunity to be encouraged, to be built up, to be strengthened. The testing here is not setting us up to fail, but it's God giving us an opportunity to show that our faith is genuine. Now granted, the scriptures make clear the parable of the sowers that I covered uh, at least in reference a few weeks ago. Sometimes persecution will distinguish whether somebody's really safe. Because Jesus said some are going to respond to the word with joy, but when persecution arises, boom, they're gone. Not for God's children. And so God brings these trials, allow these fiery ordeals to test us, to show the genuineness of our faith. So in the biblical principles for understanding and responding to persecution, we had the persecution of believers is normal, not exceptional. Section, persecution should strengthen us, not destroy us. And third, and this is where we covered last week, persecution should cause us to rejoice. Persecution should cause us to rejoice. Verse 13, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. And again, Peter's trying to get us to think rightly about persecution. And the idea is not that we enjoy the pain. The idea is that even in the midst of the pain, we realize we are honored to suffer for Christ. Keep on rejoicing. It's just like some of the other passages where James considered all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. This is something specific. If you're being persecuted, we should respond like the apostles in the book of Acts that went out rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. And the idea is that the world is hating, the world hates Jesus. They hated Jesus, they crucified Jesus. 2,000 years later, the world still hates Jesus. But Jesus isn't here, so he has to, the world has to take out their hatred on his followers. And if you're counted worthy to suffer, it just means you're a real follower of Christ. You rejoice. It's going to be a great moment at the time that either you're entering into heaven or the Lord returns because there's a principle, it seems to be to the degree that you suffer, the greater the suffering, the greater the celebration. Even the least in heaven is never going to shed a tear. It's going to be ecstatic. But there seems to be a clear principle that if you suffer more on the earth, you're going to rejoice more when you see the Lord. So, that's a quick overview of all of our prior teaching. And that brings us to a fourth point. So, persecution of believers is normal, not exceptional. Persecution should strengthen us, not destroy us. 
persecution should cause us to rejoice. And four, God is with you in the midst of persecution. Again, this is the principles for understanding and responding to persecution. We need to remember that God is with you in the midst of persecution. And we'll see this in verse 14. Peter says this, If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Now, Peter is, of course, still, we're in this section dealing with persecution. How to be holy in the midst of persecution. But he's really given an illustration of a particular type of the fiery ordeal. He says, if you are reviled for the name of Christ. Now, without getting into a grammar lesson of how the language was originally constructed, this if isn't really a, well, it may happen, it may not. From a practical standpoint, this is more of a when. When when this occurs, you're reviled for the name of Christ. Peter's assuming this is going to happen to us. Again, he already said, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal so some strange thing hap- were happening to you. If they persecuted Jesus, they'll persecute us. And he's just saying this is a type of the persecution that you will encounter if you're reviled for the name of Christ. Some versions translate that reviled as insulted. Some use the word reproached. It's all the the same meaning. It's a verbal assault. This particular phrase isn't dealing with somebody who's physically suffering for the gospel. It's more people who are being verbally abused for the gospel. Which really speaks volumes to us because in our particular culture, that's more likely what we encounter. Insults. Reproach, being reviled. Character assassination fits into this category. And we all understand, it's one of those strange things you wonder, why did we ever learn this as little kids? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. It's like, why would you teach a kid that? Words hurt horribly. They're painful. To be insulted and reviled. Now, of course, we we step back and we, we just look at culture and we say, well, wait. People insult each other all the time. That's not something unique to Christians. You just throw a bunch of unbelievers in a room and the insults fly. We call it politics. But it's characteristic. All unbelievers are reviled and insulted and reproached all the time. So in the sense, you go, well, wait a minute, that's just life. No, this is a specific type of insult and reproach. It's not just reviling that goes on in our culture, insults that happen all the time. It's in for the name of Christ. This is specific hatred that comes from being identified with Jesus. And the Bible makes it clear And it's one of those things that's a mystery. Jesus came to redeem sinners, 
It's the greatest act of love and compassion and mercy in all human history, and yet it inspired hatred. It's the depth of sin in the human heart. The illogic of sin. In Luke chapter 21, verses 16 and 17, it's just an illustration of this. Jesus said, But you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death, and you will be hated by all because of my name. There is no virtue in us being cantankerous, miserable people through being miserable human beings we cause people to hate us. But there's no point in restructuring your life to try and get unbelievers to be happy about what you're telling them about Jesus. You've got to share the truth whether they're angry or frustrated. And you can't be caught off guard when they are angry and they revile you for it. Because darkness hates light. This really, this reviling, Jesus suffered so much. So much physical indignity, but he suffered verbal abuse over and over and over again. In Mark chapter 15, and there's a couple of accounts of this, but in Mark chapter 15, verses 31 and 32, it's, it's Jesus is getting ready to die. He's on the cross. Verse 31, it's not enough that he's already going to be dead. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, he saved others, he can't save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe all sarcasm, all insulting. And in other contexts, from the history of what's going on in other Gospels, even in this Gospel, all the passerbys are hurling insults as well. So you got the passerbys hurling insults. Then the religious leaders are hurling insults. The end of verse 32. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. 2,000 years ago, even when they thought they had won and Jesus was going to be murdered, they were insulting him because they hated him. And 2,000 years later, it's not different. Unbelievers still hate Jesus because he exposes their sin. And he does it through us. It really is fascinating the depth of sin. And it fascinates me. Just one of those thoughts that came through my mind. And it ultimately illustrates something else Peter's saying that we'll see here. But think about the two thieves on the cross at that moment. Verse 32 says they were insulting Jesus. How much hatred is in your heart? You're being killed yourself. It's not enough that you're dying and you're suffering, but in the midst of that, you see everybody else mocking Christ and it's like, hey, I'll jump in. That, that's just entrenched evil. You're being killed yourself. You're a criminal yourself. You know you're guilty, but when other people are mocking Jesus, it's like, hey, okay, I'll throw some... Shots. Now Peter's already told us, how did Jesus respond to this? How did Jesus respond to this? First Peter 2, 23. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. 
while suffering he uttered no threats. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. But here's the point. Jesus didn't respond in kind. Jesus didn't get into an argument. Jesus didn't defend himself. Jesus didn't say, well, you say that to me. Look at you. You're dying. None of that. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. He wasn't fighting back. They didn't see him angry and spewing hatred. In fact, the only thing they would have heard him say in relation to all of that abuse, including the physical abuse, but in the reviling was, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Here's what's interesting about that. And it never occurred to me until I was preparing this. What happened there is an illustration of 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, even when they're slandering you. Because one day they may give glory to God. The thief on the cross, one of them that was mocking Jesus, God changed his heart. Even in the midst of all the mocking and the hatred. Luke chapter 23 verses 39 to 43. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. In other words, copying what the religious leader said. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God? Since you were under the same sentence of condemnation. You could almost picture that as he's sitting there and he's hurled the insults himself, a moment of clarity comes into his heart. Verse 41, And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when we come in your kingdom. And he, Jesus, said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. He went from insulting Jesus to defending Jesus. He went from hating Jesus to placing his faith solely in Jesus. And again, I think this is an illustration of what Peter said could happen. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. That's what that thief on the cross did. He was slandering. He was reviling. And yet, as he watched Jesus, perhaps even recognizing that Jesus wasn't hating those who were doing it, Jesus had compassion for them, It had an impact. God used it to change his heart. So that was sort of a side row. So I kind of took the car off the road there. What was the point? Part of the reason we have to keep persecution in perspective, part of the reason we have to keep being reviled for the name of Christ is in perspective is because we care about the salvation of sinners, including those that hurt us really, really bad. Including those who are insulting and persecuting us personally. I know I'm a broken record on some of these things. But when I'm going through a book like this, I see the same application over and over. And I look at our culture and I'm convicted over and over. It's like, ah, it's the same thing. I should have learned this in chapter 1, in chapter 2, in chapter 3. And then in chapter 4, I'm like, hey, this is what I should do. But it is easy to let anger get the best of us. When you see the world around us calling up, down, calling good, evil, calling evil, virtuous, it's easy to get aggravated. And then in the midst of it, if some 
faithful saint should raise the voice and say, but that's not what the Bible says. They're assaulted verbally. They're humiliated. Many times they're run out of a job. Their business gets closed down because of protest. I get aggravated with that. I think you get aggravated with that. We can get angry about that. We see them insulting Christians and mocking our beliefs and accusing the church falsely. And if we're not careful, we don't have righteous anger, we just have anger anger. Such that we wish them harm rather than forgiveness. We, and I don't know what would be the most striking example in your mind. Maybe it's a politician that has views that are anathema to you. Maybe it's some of the protesters who are absolutely leading people astray saying that this aberrant sexual behavior is good behavior. And if you don't approve of it, you're hateful. Whatever it is, whatever causes you the most internal turmoil, at that moment you need to check your heart to make sure that you want them saved. You need to check your heart to make sure that you don't wish them the fires of hell, which we all deserve, but that in your heart you say, well, how could the gospel get to them? I'm just being honest. Far too often I'm just mad at them. And I think that's disgusting. That's ridiculous. And I don't stop to be like Jesus and say, Father, forgive them, but they don't know what they're doing. In fact, in the midst of that, if we're not careful, we can get sanctimonious even in our salvation and think, well, see, we could see it. What's wrong with them? And our theology is all upside down because we didn't see it. God opened our blind eyes. We didn't see it. We were dead and God made us alive. We need to pray that for those who are reviling us. So let me come back to our text now. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Now again, I'm still not to the point about God being with us, but it's a repeat. That's why we can rejoice, why we have exaltation in the future. You're blessed now if you're persecuted. God's blessings come to you now in the midst of the persecution. One day in heaven your rewards will be great, but even now, here, now, when it hurts, you're blessed. Again, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, verse 13, keep on rejoicing. Rejoicing now, not just rejoicing in the future. Jesus promised that if we're persecuted, we're blessed. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. That would fit within the reviling. Verse 12, rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Again, Peter's just saying, look, you are blessed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, if you're reproached for the name of Christ, you're blessed. But Peter is making it clear it's not just all future blessings. It's not just a situation where you can smile and say, well, in 20 years when I'm in heaven, I'll be rejoiced. No, even now, the blessings of God come to you. And the blessings in part are the reality that God is with you now in the midst of it. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. 
This is clearly talking about the Holy Spirit. Those are just descriptive things. The Spirit of glory, God's glory is revealed in the Spirit of God. And God in His glory through His Spirit rests on believers. Peter is reminding us of the indwelling presence of God. God is with us with His Spirit forever. As long as we're on the earth, we have the Helper, the Comforter, to walk through these trials with us. Peter is using imagery that highlights our union with Jesus Christ. Most commentators that look at this text say that there is a imagery that comes from Isaiah chapter 11 verses 1 and 2. Isaiah chapter 11 verses 1 and 2 is, is a prophetic text looking forward to Jesus and there's imagery involved that is reflected in what Peter is saying. Isaiah 11, beginning at verse 1, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Verse 2, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And there's a sense, as God rested his Spirit on his Son, in the mysteries of the Trinity, how those things occur, God rests His Spirit on His children. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of glory. And it's a picture, it's reminding us of what we have in the Holy Spirit. In fact, when it talks about God's glory... And I, I have a hard time doing justice to this because I can't fully picture everything that I read in the Old Testament. But when the temple was built and Solomon was getting to dedicate the temple, according to the Bible in 1 Kings chapter 8, I won't necessarily read it today, but I'll just summarize it. But in 1 Kings chapter 8, there came a point where the priest couldn't even go into the Holy of Holies because God's glory filled the place. He said, the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And there's a sense that what Peter is alluding to is how comprehensive God's glory rests on us in His Spirit even now. There's a picture, you know. God is God of glory. The glory of the Lord. There's all kinds of references in the Old Testament. John chapter 1 verse 14 makes it clear Christ was a part of this. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And we're seeing the Spirit of glory and of God. God's glory is revealed in all of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the picture that Peter is painting... It's supposed to be very encouraging to us. When people are reviling us and people are insulting us, it's personal. Even if they're doing it for the name of Christ, if we're not careful, what we see is ourselves. If someone's insulting me for the name of Christ, they're not really insulting Joe. They're insulting Jesus. But who feels the hurt? Joe. And Peter is letting us know, look, 
When that happens, step back and think theologically for a moment. God's Spirit is in you. The Spirit of glory. You're not left alone. This insult isn't directed at me. And even in the midst of the insults, they can't touch you. In the midst of insults and suffering, in the midst of persecution, we have God's glorious Holy Spirit indwelling us, sustaining us, preserving us, the guarantee that there's nothing on this earth we need fear. All they can do is kill the body. So what? And we're not even talking about killing the body. This is just insults. If I had time to read more of it, it's a fascinating picture. Go back if you haven't done it recently. Reread the account of Stephen in the book of Acts. Stephen is a great example of how to witness in the face of persecution. They were getting ready to kill him and he gave an unbelievable gospel message replete with history from the Old Testament. Just It was a beautiful message. But at the end of the day, all it did was make those who were going to kill him angrier and angrier and angrier. And Peter's only talking about insults. But what applied to insults applies to any persecution. And in Acts chapter 7, verses 55 to 56, we see something of how did Stephen say all those things? How did Stephen do all those things? Was he just a unique individual, unparalleled, we wouldn't have any hope? It says, but being full of the Holy Spirit. That was the key. Being full of the Holy Spirit... He gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. In the midst of insults, you may not see that picture. Probably you won't. But take comfort from that. You're full of the Holy Spirit. You're blessed now. And we want to face suffering like Stephen did. Comforted by... God's spirit and God's glory such that even in the midst of suffering we keep a proper perspective. What jumped out to me personally more than anything else is that when I am aggravated and frustrated by those who are lying about Jesus or lying about Christianity or assaulting God's church or threatening harm to God's children in our country... And my first reaction is to think, well, how can the court stop them? How can they stop them? My first reaction should be, Father, forgive them. For they don't know what they're doing. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, your word is an anchor for our souls. And we thank you, Lord, for the lessons that you give us that tell us how to live if the world turns hostile towards us, and it will happen. Lord, I pray for my own reaction to what I see going on in the culture. Far too often, Lord, I'm just angry, and I don't have the compassion of Christ to say, forgive them. Lord, I pray for each one of us 
that we'll recognize that even if we're insulted for the name of Jesus Christ, we're blessed. We're not left to endure those insults alone. In fact, they're not even personal to us. They're coming at us because of Jesus. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. And Lord, help us remember that in the midst of that, we're not standing by ourselves wondering what happened. Your Spirit, the Spirit of glory and of God, dwells in us. We're filled with your Spirit, Lord. Help us if we should come face to face with insults for the name of Christ. Help us submit and walk in your Spirit. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the church. We thank you for brothers and sisters in Christ from whom we can draw comfort and encouragement. Lord, help us point each other to the truth of your word. And let us do it, Lord, not for our sake, but for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.